Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. It's normal and healthy for us to try to process our experiences emotionally. But sometimes during that processing process, something strange happens, and we just get stuck. If you find yourself returning to the same painful memory, current anxiety, or disturbing thought over and over and over again, you might be experiencing something known as rumination. Rumination is the habit of obsessive thinking, and it occurs when you just can't move on from something. Most people have experienced this at some point, and just speaking personally for a moment here, it's one of the most frustrating and frustratingly common psychological experiences. We are just haunted by this thought that we can't get free of. And part of what makes it so frustrating is that all of this thinking is often not really getting us anywhere. So today we're going to be exploring rumination and obsessive thinking. We'll cover where it comes from and how we can break away from those thought black holes that tend to suck us in. So to help me do that, I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, he's a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, and I'm thrilled about this topic. It's a wonderful one. It's deep. It's also a portal into the basement of the mind. Yeah. And what's going on there. So I'm looking forward to taking the elevator down, (laughs) 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 including into the murky depths. (laughs) Love that. Great context for it. Before we get started with today's episode, I do want to give people a couple of quick reminders here. First of all, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while and you've been enjoying it, we'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it through whatever podcast player you happen to be listening to it on right now. Then second, if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll get a bunch of bonuses in return. This includes things like transcripts of the episodes, ad-free versions of our episodes, and expanded show notes where I dive into the research that goes into everything that we produce. And for this episode, there was quite a bit of research. So Dad, to kind of set us up here, how do you think about rumination and what are some of the key distinctions in this territory? It helps me to start with the origin of the word, hmm. which comes from ruminants. In other words, those cows and other (laughs) large land mammals that have, I believe, cloven hooves, who chew their cud Mm, and mm -hmm. are doing so to slowly but surely digest things like grass that have a high, I guess, cellulose and fiber content and actually (laughs) processing them. So when we're ruminating, in effect, Mm. we're chewing our mental cud with a connotation and emphasis on negative processes. So just like you said, When we're going over something, it could be a conversation we had with somebody, it could be something we did, it could be something we wish would happen. When we go over it again and again and again, tinged with negativity, that's rumination. Mm -hmm. And in the spectrum of rumination, people can be aware of a degree of how much there is deliberate engagement with the material And how much is it a matter of the mind is wandering, drawn into negative loops, sort of into the gravitational field of these nasty planets that we're sucked into? It's one thing to have your mind wandering, including in positive ways. You're just sort of daydreaming. There is evidence that the more that people tend to wander, the more they tend to get sucked into negative preoccupations, thus Mm. rumination. Mm -hmm. So that's my quick summary, and I'm sure we'll get into a lot of details about nuances, and especially what to do about it. Yeah, my version of this is what do I think about in the shower? And it's that version of it where your brain is just sort of turned off, you're thinking about whatever you're thinking about, and then something pulls your attention. And often, for me, it gets pulled by a frustration, a negative experience, a conversation I had with somebody else that didn't go the way that I wanted to, and you do some normal mental processing about it. You have the conversation in the shower with the imagined person that you've had 10 times where you say everything that you wanted to say, but you never actually say it to them in real life. And there are perfectly healthy and normal levels of that, and then there are levels of it where it starts to interfere with our ability to think about other things, our ability to enjoy some other aspect of life because the thoughts 
are so negative and so pervasive. And in terms of defining it, the best language that I've personally found comes from the Buddhist tradition, where there is this phrase from one of the, the Buddhist suttas that includes the line, invade the mind and remain, talking about both negative experiences and positive experiences. And that just that phrase, it invaded the mind and remained, I think is a great encapsulation of rumination. Oh, it's beautifully said. Hmm. Yeah, the, I think the crux feature of rumination is that it's not productive. And the yeah. difference between human rumination and bovine <laughs> rumination is that the cows actually digest what yeah. they're ruminating on. But for us, we don't digest it. We just keep mm. doing laps around the rumination track. And in those laps, we're actually, unfortunately, tending to reinforce that negative material through mm. the negativity bias of the brain and just natural processes. When we're in the simulator, sometimes I call the ruminator, which <laughs> as you'll talk more about, I'm sure later, typically involves the default mode network. When we're doing laps around the track there in the ruminator, those neurons are firing together and tending to wire together as well. So if the key for me, is the mental preoccupation productive? Mm -hmm. And in the sense that either we're releasing material, we're mindfully aware of it, we're, we're experiencing it out, we're releasing it, but actually rumination doesn't tend to release emotionally negative material. It reinforces it. And in some ways, it often is a way to defend against really, really feeling it. So it's not like you're allowing it in your mind in big spacious field of awareness, associating spacious awareness to it, and then helping it gradually ease out the door. You're not doing that. So it's not productive in that sense. And also, typically in rumination, there's not effective problem solving. It's not like we're working our way to a good solution that we believe in including just accepting some kind of loss and finding a way to live in peace nonetheless. So right there, we have not productive in terms of releasing negative emotion, and second, not productive in terms of problem solving. These are, for me, two principal characteristics of problematic rumination. So if rumination isn't doing anything for us, where it's not helping us effectively solve a problem and it's not helping us release painful feelings associated with that problem, if it causes us discomfort, if it doesn't really teach us anything, why do we ruminate? It's a really interesting question. People have banged away at this. And I want to distinguish rumination from mind-wandering in general. Wandering mind and the operations of the default mode network in general can often have some positive features. There's research that shows it's a way to somewhat deepen life learning as we go over things again it clears the memory systems, releases the clutter, and also it gives us a break from effortful task doing hmm. as we just sort of chill hmm. out and, mm -hmm. and kind of also disengage from the stream of the world. So there you are, wandering mind, that's fine. You know That probably has some benefit. Negative rumination, I don't see much evolved benefit from it. I think it's just an unfortunate capability that mice, cats, and monkeys do not have. They don't ruminate. They're in the present. They're not dwelling in the past or worrying about a future. And I think that it doesn't have much of a function to mm. negatively ruminate. It doesn't really have a function, and still we kind of sort of do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're totally right. And maybe I should have been a little bit more precise with my language, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer a, a theory here that All right. other better educated in psychology people than me have offered, so this is not an original idea. I just want to be clear yeah. about that. Rumination is just another coping behavior in a lot of ways. Psychologically, it's a behavior that we perform in response to stress. And I do think that there are just... I'm not sure what exactly the right language to use here is. Some design flaws in our overall, yeah. you know, we're, we're not perfectly evolved animals. We've just got some features that are problematic. Yeah. But I do think that we can look at it and go, okay, what are we getting out of this, if anything? Yeah. And I do think that anxiety release is a great example of something that some people do feel like they're getting out of rumination because it gives us the feeling that we're dealing with a problem. It gives us the feeling that we're preparing ourselves for some future event that could be really painful. Speaking as a six, fear point mm -hmm. in the Enneagram, big time natural propensity for rumination, I would say, that I've worked on a lot. 
if you chew on something enough, you feel like you can better address the issue in the future. And one of the things about rumination to be very careful with is that I think it's quite a seductive experience. Yeah. Because it makes you feel like you're getting somewhere when you're really not getting anywhere at all. So that's why I think that people engage with it. It can feel productive, even if it's not actually productive. I'm really glad you said that for us. And I was, interestingly, I think I was trying to correct or balance my somewhat evolutionarily <laughs> functional frame. And you're yeah. totally right. I, I, I can say for myself that there are two functions in rumination that I'm aware of when I do it, mm. which is one, it's a way to avoid feeling my feelings. I'm running the loop. I'm seeing the movie. I'm cognitively caught up typically in yeah. a sense of a case against what happened. Great cognitive bypassing technique is some good old rumination. Yeah. Yeah. My grievances and how they did me dirt and what ought to happen and why didn't other people help me more. Those failed protectors where a lot of the action is in our relationships, including in situations that are traumatic. So it's a way to avoid just feeling what I'm feeling. And second, depending on the type of rumination, particularly if it's related to loss, mm, mm -hmm. it can be a way to help oneself feel that you are still in relationship with the situation, the group, or the individual that there's been a loss of. It's a way to maintain a kind of attachment. Let's say there's been a rift, an estrangement in our family system. We did a whole episode on this. Yeah. Not at all uncommon. And to ruminate about, to obsess about, to keep dwelling in the last time you talked with that person or the thing they said when they broke contact with you or the letter they wrote you and you're still thinking what letter to write back, even though several years have already gone by. I can speak from some personal experience here. In a way, it's a way to stay in contact with the yeah. internalized other and I want to be careful, and I'm glad you let me slow down, because there are ways in which grieving and mourning in natural, not pathological, even if painful ways, even over months and years, can look a little like negative rumination. But I want to call out that I don't think of them in that way. I think of that as a metabolic process to go back to healthy rumination mm, mm -hmm. we should do an episode well we can learn from the cows that's right <laughs> <laughs> they i mean it, our, our stress episode was basically what we could learn from the zebras so might as well include the cows in this too why not yes and the ultimate fruits if you will of their bovine rumination is fuel yeah. that many people use to light fires so you know there's a good result here, right? Not too bad. <laughs> what is I never the... thought that cow patties were going to make an appearance on this podcast, Dad, but I'm glad we got there. Yeah, and don't forget, psilocybin mushrooms grow out of cow pot patties. Sure, but yeah. We're just yeah. not going to go down that road any farther <laughs> right now. <laughs> Back to rumination. Yes, yeah, of so course, of course. Let's yeah. see if we can... So how would you kind of sort out or distinguish between problematic rumination and the natural processes of grieving and mourning. I do think it's a really subtle thing. This is one of those things where I think you kind of know it when you see it. Yeah. And I want to be a little careful about that because people can absolutely get trapped in negative thought cycles that they don't recognize as negative and problematic. But I think that for most people, you know if you've spent not just day three, but week three, month three, year three, chewing on the same idea, and you just haven't made any progress. So for me, that idea of have you made some progress around this is a very central question to ask yourself. Are you thinking different thoughts today than you were three months ago? And if the answer is no, that is a big red flag. Does it feel like there's a, an opening, a gentling, a releasing, which I would think are characteristics of what I'll call healthy grieving and mourning, even over years. There's a softness in it. Rumination feels contracted. Mm -hmm. There's a contracting around what we're ruminating about. And the sense of self in the rumination can also feel contracted. And there's often a sense that the self in the rumination 
has been mistreated and has grievances. Whereas I think what we could call healthy grieving, natural grieving, natural mourning, it's not so much around being mistreated oneself, mm-hmm. nor is there typically a strong case about the way the world ought to be mm. that we're getting caught up in internally, including with a certain righteousness. One other feature of certain kinds of rumination, especially obsessive thinking, is what's called magical thinking. Mm-hmm. It's this notion, going back to your question of functions, that sometimes people believe that if they do something repetitively in their mind, like keep saying a thing over and over and over again, or if they are counting the cracks in the sidewalk that they walk over, there's this kind of belief that this behavior, including mental behavior as well as more overt actionable behaviors like an overt compulsion, are warding off disasters of various Mm -hmm. kinds. Mm -hmm. And the theme also of loss of autonomy, Mm -hmm. when you're caught up in magical thinking. And people can be aware of, is there a notion that if you stop ruminating, what might happen? What if you could just stop ruminating? What's the fear? And right there, you might notice that within a second or two, there's something that pops up like, whoa. Yeah, totally. Whoa. Well, that then goes to the function of rumination and what you're maybe trying to prevent or ward off through ruminating. Let's spend a little bit of time here talking about where rumination comes from in people. Because as I said a little bit earlier, I definitely feel propensity for rumination inside of myself that maybe some other people don't have as much. And sorting out the roots of this is always a bit complicated. And we can say with some confidence that rumination comes from a combination of nature and nurture. So whatever goes into making us biologically who we are, combined with the experiences that we have out in the world. And one thing that we do know from research is that people who have experienced a lot of stressful life events, stuff has gone on in your life that's put some additional pressure on you, tend to ruminate more. And really, really, really interestingly, the presence or absence of a ruminatory process in the brain is a major mediator of whether or not those stressful life events tend to lead to long-term anxiety and depression. Mm. And here's where we get into a little bit of a complex chicken and the egg thing, because rumination is a major feature of some of the most common psychological challenges that people have. Anxiety disorders, depression, OCD, PTSD, rumination features in all of these things. And you start to ask yourself some questions about, okay, is the rumination causing the anxiety? Is the anxiety causing the rumination? It gets very complicated. But one of the things that we are pretty confident in is that when stressful things happen to us, if we're able to avoid ruminating about them, there's some reason to believe that that can protect us from developing more long-term issues. So finding ways to decrease rumination after something painful happens to us is really, really important for our long-term psychological health. Well, I hope you keep going. Um, I'm reminded (laughs) of a saying attributed to Sokni Rinpoche, think the same thought again and again, that's fine, but 10 is enough. (laughs) 10 is enough, yeah, absolutely. So with that as some context, let's talk about how rumination functions in the brain a little bit, because we've already alluded to this earlier on in the episode. And cognitively, with some exceptions, of course, rumination, as near as we can tell, is based largely on processes that occur as part of the default mode network. That's one of the major networks in the brain. And we talked about the default mode network a lot during our recent episode with Judd Brewer on the self. So if you have already listened to that one, you got a nice crash course in everything that that network does. But a major role that it has is what we sometimes call wakeful rest, which is basically all of the time where you're awake and you're staring off into space and you're daydreaming, you're imagining possibilities, your mind is wandering, you're not applying top-down, focused, deliberate attention. And we can think of it as the autopilot network of the brain. And another way to think about it is that it's our distraction network. Because in a healthy brain, it's really suppressed when somebody is performing an attention-demanding task. So more attention, less default mode network, less rumination. And interestingly, many psychological disorders, like schizophrenia, are associated with an overactivation 
of the default mode network. So more default mode network, more rumination, more of these problems. And in depression in particular, there's some evidence that hyperactivity of that part of the brain is related to these negative forms of rumination that we're focusing on. All of that spiel aside, if you just want one bullet point out of all of this, one way that we can decrease rumination is by, hello, leaning on practices that tend to deactivate that part of the brain. And so we can learn a lot from some of the fMRI imaging studies and such that are done on the brain, and we can go, okay, what turns down the volume knob on the default mode network, and how can we do that deliberately if we're trying to decrease rumination? What a great setup. So, Thank you, Dad. <laughs> that was a lot of research went into that five-minute feel. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. Really. Now, in terms of what to do about it, you know, I have a list of 17 items, I'm you know, sure four you by do. 12 grid, but I'll try to <laughs> not do that. Okay. Maybe we'll just go back and forth or something. Yeah, love that. So first, I'll just make a general observation that for those who do any kind of meditation, Essentially, what that's a lot about is recognizing when you're sucked into the simulator, the default mode network, and you're swept along with various mini-movies, and when you're not. And so much of what meditation's about, especially sort of fundamental mindfulness meditation, is about recognizing the early hooks, the allure of the little trains that want to get you to hop on board mm. and then letting them go on by. Because if you were to hop on board, suddenly burp, burp, you'd be in the ruminator. You'd be in the default mode network. An example I've often used is there you are watching your breath, 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 shopping list. I need more milk. <laughs> I better get some milk on the way home. We need more money. My partner needs to make more money. Whoop. Breath, <laughs> breath, breath, right? Very, very common. Yeah. Yep. That's the training of attention. It's very normal. And that's a lot of what you're doing. You're basically trying to establish a foundational steadiness of mind, real-time recognition of when you're in, when you're not in, the ruminator, and also what's going to kind of hook you early into it and disengaging from that. Mm. Right? I'll tell you three things that I think are just right up front and also neurologically informed vis-a-vis -vis staying out of the default mode network and Great. negative rumination. One is... Task positive behavior. In other words, when you're actually doing something useful and productive on mission for you in some way, you're doing the dishes deliberately, you're building a business deliberately, you're thinking productively about a problem. As you said earlier, when we're engaged in deliberate doing of something useful, hopefully, yep. being functional, being focused, getting stuff done, hopefully productively. That's mm -hmm. one. Second, Tune into the internal sensations of your body. Mm. Bingo. You engage the insula when you do that through interoception. And as soon as you engage the insula with the internal sensations of your body in a deliberate way, that acts like a circuit breaker of the default mode. It brings you into sensation. It brings you into sensation in real time, continually changing. That's really effective. Third, simple, is to move more into the present moment. Rumination takes us out of the present moment. It's typically very involved with mental time travel, a wonderful neurological development over the last couple million years, a beautiful servant and a terrible master, though, mental time travel. <laughs> and so when we come into the present, we're less involved with the mental time travel aspect of rumination. And going to the thing I said earlier, when we are alerted to something new, Something has happened. We may not know what it is or where it is or what to do about it, but we're involved in the very front end, front edge of the processing stream, the emergent edge of now, mm. to put it somewhat metaphorically. When we're right there in the present, we're being alerted continuously to what's arising, and that right there, bingo, engages ancient circuitry involved with attention, and especially the initial alerting aspect of attention, that acts like a circuit breaker on the default mode network and whoop, takes us out of the ruminator. Mm. I want to point to something that's implicit in everything you just said that is a subtle but very important point. All of those things that you named are about bringing our attention toward something else. 
not trying to push away the ruminating thought. Very good. That's a very, very important distinction. So this is something that's known as thought suppression, and it never goes particularly well. And research generally indicates that the more that you deliberately try to not think about something, the more you end up thinking about it. A classic example of this comes from political science, actually. My thesis advisor at UC Berkeley was a guy named George Lakoff, who's done a lot of work in political linguistics. And he has a book titled Don't Think of an Elephant, the point being that people immediately think of an elephant if you tell them not to. Oh, that's great. I know. It's like ordering somebody... Don't think about the fact that this elevator might break before you get into it. (laughs) It doesn't work. And so your point's great. It's shifting over. Yeah. I don't know if you'll include this out there stuff, but I'll just toss it in. You may know from chaos theory this term, strange attractors. Mm. It's this idea that of all the different states that a system might take, Mm. you can imagine that as different temperatures or the ways interactions with a certain person might go attractors are the versions of those states that are particularly powerful and pull you right in. And so the question is, what are the strange attractors Mm, in the mm. complex dynamic system, the unfolding dynamism of your relationship with a person or the way a group operates, a company or a country or your mind? And One of the things that happens when people do the work you and I have talked a lot about of developing positive, wholesome traits inside oneself, you are creating strange attractors that are really positive. They're beneficial. Mm. They feel good and they work well. They are good. People who ruminate are reinforcing and deepening the pocket, the divot of a negative attractor state. Mm. They're getting increasingly drawn into it. Now, if you fight that, you're just reinforcing it. So much as you're saying, and in this kind of complex systems metaphor, when we shift attention elsewhere, we are gradually training the brain to deepen the strange attractors that are positive. Mm -hmm. And thoroughly geeky as this is, still somehow (laughs) (laughs) it works for me. And then there is the story of Krishna and the gopis. Oh, great. Love this. (laughs) Yeah, go Krishna. (laughs) I'm probably going to mangle it. And okay, here we go. Basically, Krishna in the Hindu religion framework historically and so forth, an embodiment of what is good. Krishna is a beautiful musician. And as the story goes, which I'm thoroughly mangling, (laughs) he appears one day to a whole bunch of gopis who are female cowherds in ancient India, tending to their cattle, dealing with their worldly concerns. Dad, you just you just wanted to tell the story because we got to talk about the cows more. I'm, I'm on to you here. I'm, <laughs> I'm on to you here, Dad. This is a cow-themed podcast now. Okay. <laughs> All right. And so Krishna starts playing his beautiful music, drawing people in this framework. You kind of have to accept the premise of the framework, drawing the, the gopis to, to the divine. The point of the story is that then the Gopis leave their cows behind, their worldly concerns, their preoccupations, let's say even their negative ruminations, Mm. and they're just attracted. They're just drawn to Krishna. He doesn't have to tell them that the cows smell bad and leave poop behind. He doesn't have to argue (laughs) against it. He's not critiquing their life. He's just playing beautiful music and drawing them to him, which is another example of the power of the principle of attraction, Mm. which I think is a really, really kind of undervalued principle, Mm. both in raising kids, Mm. especially teenagers, highlighting what we're trying to appeal to and draw toward, rather than just say no to this, this, and that. Yeah, totally. And also in our own minds, what is it that we are leaning toward? And Mm. by leaning toward it, we increasingly dwell there, and Mm. it dwells within us. I think that's great, Dad. I think it's, uh, it, hey, you might have mangled the story, but I didn't know any better because I'm not familiar with the story. So it sounded great to me. Okay. And so I think that this gets us to an obvious question, right? Which is, well, that all sounds well and good, but if you're telling me not to push the thought away, what do I do when this thought boils up into my consciousness? And what people who know more about this than me often say, and I would love your take on it, Dad, 
is a basic practice here is what's called sometimes thought acceptance, which is really consistent with an act and an acceptance and commitment therapy sort of approach. You're with the experience. You're recognizing that the thought is there. You're accepting the presence of the thought. You're being honest with yourself. I am having this thought. It is intrusive. It is annoying. And it's happening right now. And then you're doing your best to distract yourself with something new and different. You're allowing yourself to be drawn toward something else. Maybe it's Krishna. Maybe it's just whatever else you want to be doing with your time. Maybe it's washing the dishes in a mindful way, whatever it happens to be. And that's a good way to relate to those experiences in the moment. And then you can catch yourself each time that this thought tries to reemerge into your consciousness and go, okay, I'm having this thought. The thought is coming back. It's time for me to be drawn towards something else, as opposed to actively trying to go, no brain, don't think about that thing. And one way to support that is to Mm. label that thought to yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, Noting practice research shows that when we just start labeling it very lightly, like, oh, argument with my brother-in-law, right? Or, oh, these days, politically, people do a lot of negative rumination politically about various figures or things they said or outrage or what I would say if I was on CNN talking to that Mm, person. mm -hmm, I've had more mm -hmm. than a few of those. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, it's to just note them. Oh, okay, me arguing with the TV. Oh, okay, me and, you know, so-and-so politician. Uh, When you note... You increase activity in prefrontal regions behind your forehead that are regulatory, executive regions that kind of top down. And also it tends to dial down activity in the amygdala, the alarm bell of the brain, which is very involved with highlighting threat typically and initiating the stress cascade. So yeah, naming them. Uh, I think Dan Siegel has a saying, name it to tame it. Yeah, there's there's name it to tame it. There's name it so you don't shame it. There's a lot of different oh, phrases that that emerge inside of that totally. And one of the things that you mentioned to me before we started recording that feels very obvious once you say it, but just the way that you said it really landed with me for whatever reason was one of the biggest things that people ruminate about is just about how they're a bad person. Yeah. They're ruminating about their own Defects. Defects. There, I am a bad person. I've always been a bad person. And this bad thing that I did recently that I'm ruminating about is yet more evidence that I will continue to be a bad person in the future. And I think that that indicates something, which is that these obsessive negative thoughts that we have often rely on a very, a world without a gradient, you know, a, a very clearly codified, this is the way the world is sort of view. And so one of the ways that we can, to steal a fancy phrase from cognitive behavioral therapy, one of the ways that we can disconfirm the pathogenic belief, we can push back on these negative thought streams, is by deliberately bringing to mind what you sometimes refer to, Dad, as antidote experiences or Mm -hmm. antidote memories, just examples of times when this wasn't actually the case. Can you activate a memory of a time when things turned out okay, if you're being really caught up in an anxious spiral about something? Can you bring to mind a time when you really were a good person, when you came through for somebody else, when you supported somebody else in a meaningful way, if what you're caught up in is some negative story about yourself? How about times that other people supported you in authentic ways, if the story you're telling is about other people? And these are just all little ways that we can push back on the negative story that our brain is telling us. That's beautiful, Forrest. And we can use those antidotes in the moment Mm -hmm. as states of being. Great. And a person can step back Mm. from chronic rumination. Maybe Mm. the chronic rumination has themes in it. What are the themes? Okay, so one would be a theme of anxiety. Like, oh, a bad thing could happen. All right. Another theme could be grievances with others, resentments, mistreatment. Or a theme, let's say, third could be worthlessness, morbid self-preoccupation, that's a phrase, with one's purported defects. Well, if you step back from, let's say, those themes, or maybe there's another theme, by the way, which is quite common, contamination. Mm -hmm. And obsessions and sometimes compulsions are really about managing the threat of contamination or feeling contaminated in some way. So then if you know strategically that you're prone in this direction. And what I'm naming here is really important. 
for people who have chronic rumination. If you know you're prone to rumination around these particular themes, then the question becomes a really useful one. What, if it were more present in your mind in general, would really address that particular theme, balance it, regulate it, and help you dwell in happier, more beneficial places? For example, if your theme in general is around anxiety, they're classic resources. We went through them a lot in the Resilient book. We've talked about them in this podcast, such as Calm Strength, recognizing that in the present you're all right right now, and training your mind cognitively to not overestimate threats and underestimate resources, including your own strengths and capabilities. Mm. So you could strategically build those traits up so that you have them more to draw upon in the moment when you're dealing with a particular kind of rumination. And you could do similar things if the themes in your ruminations are things like a name, such as personal worthlessness or feeling mistreated by others. And that's a very useful thing that you can do strategically. I love that as a strategy. And that whole concept of building something new really pulls me into the final thing that I wanted to really stick a flag in, talking about different techniques for dealing with rumination, which is novelty, change, things being different now than they were back then. Because a lot of rumination, as you mentioned earlier, Dad, is driven by these very rigid, very contracted thought structures that we have that are strongly, strongly oriented toward a view of the world as being unchanged and unchangeable. And so something that we can do deliberately is we can look for novelty. We can look for the things that are different. We can look for how things have changed. Sometimes there's a place for validating our concern about the way things really were back then. And maybe they really were problematic, and maybe the environment really was scary, and maybe you did say something that you probably shouldn't have said to this other person. Okay, 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 okay. But that doesn't mean that that concern is still real for you in the present or that it will continue to be real for you in the future. So looking for ways that you can find some novelty inside of your experience, which is also, by the way, a great way to distract yourself, talking about those distraction techniques that we were mentioning earlier, because the brain is a magnet for novelty. If something is new or different inside of the space, it draws our attention extremely strongly. So it's a great way to break some of those entrenched patterns of thought. As you're talking here, and I kind of am looking into my own experience of rumination mm. and some research on it, I want to talk about another aspect of this, which has to do with the sense of self, mm. me, myself, and I. Mm. Mm -hmm. So clearly, when we're ruminating, there's a very strong sense of self or references to self embedded in rumination. There is the subject of the self of the I, mm -hmm. who is sort of witnessing the show of what it is we're imagining or recalling or saying or thinking about. And then there is the me in the show, who's being mistreated by other people or who's having certain experiences. There's a lot of self-constructing going on in ruminating which is one other reason why I, as someone like some other people, <laughs> are skeptical of the presumption of a rigid, contracted entity self and consider it to be a major source of suffering. So if one has a general agenda to not continually construct, reify, and reinforce that sense of the self-contraction, that's one more good reason to be careful about ruminating. Still, the actual experience of rumination in a weird kind of way, can shore up the sense of a coherent self, especially if you have felt fragmented. Mm. So if a person's been traumatized or deeply mistreated as a young child or is also maybe just temperamentally prone to a less glued-together psychological structure, ruminating, in a weird kind of way, feels self-cohering. It kind of pulls you together. And that can be a function it serves that draws people into doing it. So that's something it's to really be kind of aware of. Yeah, what's yeah. the background feeling of that? Point one. And then point two related to self-referentiality, the rumination about inadequacies or ways mm -hmm. that A, you've been, let's say, excluded or 
devalued by others, which B, links to feelings inside yourself of being less than others that you don't like and want to defend against by having them be more impressed by you, around and around you go. One way through that is to accept being defective. What I mean by that, and this goes to someone we're going to have on the show soon, uh, Dr. Ron Siegel, who's written yeah. this recent book mm-hmm. that I found deeply, deeply interesting. I think it's called The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary, in which he really addresses the whole self-esteem project altogether. Mm, I see where you're going here. Okay. Yeah. Coming from a deep mindfulness background. And one of the ways into this is just to accept you got some warts, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah, okay, that thing, I blew it. And for me, I don't get free in things that upset me that I'm ruminating about that are strange attractors in a bad way for me. I don't get free related to them until I take complete responsibility accurately for whatever my bits were and have compassion for the other people involved and myself. Those are the two keys for me and really releasing around something that's chronically upsetting for me. And part of that is, wow, yeah, I did all that. And this part was unskillful. This part was just clueless. I didn't know that part. Yeah, that's worthy remorse. That was a moral fault. I'm going to let myself feel that. So you just kind of accept it about yourself. You lighten up about yourself and you realize, you know, none of us are perfect. Like how good do you have to be to be a good enough human? Mm -hmm. Right? To be yeah. worth someone saying hello to you or opening a door for you or listening to you in a meeting. How, how brilliant do you need to be for people to just mm. kind of listen to you? And, and I think there's something here around broad self-acceptance, allowing defectiveness, you know, allowing warts and all, just being okay with that, that it can undermine rumination really from the bottom up. Well, I think that that was a beautiful little teaching there, Dad. That was really lovely and really appreciated myself and just seems like such an important thing for everyone to keep in mind during this whole process because I think that there are these ways where particularly maybe inside of mental health, psychology, personal growth traditions, there is often such a focus on the process, on the meat, on what's going on inside of the coconut that it's really easy to start getting caught up in scaled against what a lot of people experience, pretty small issues that a person has and really fixating on them and going, oh, how do I, how do I twist this nut in the brain so it just gets exactly the way that I want it to get? When the truth is that, you know, we've all got our issues. I've certainly got plenty. <laughs> and I host a self-help mental health podcast and we've been engaged in this work together for the yeah. better part of five years from writing the book to today. Yeah. And I grew up in an environment that was enormously supportive, enormously psychologically woke, like very thoughtful about these kinds of things. And yet I still came out of it with all kinds of different psychological bumps yeah. and bruises. And so I think that it's a great teaching to lean into our extraordinariness and also our ordinariness, our, the beautiful characteristics that we have and the bumps and bruises. Yeah, a kind of wild version of this. And I don't know if you're going to allow this to air. And I want to. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm not here uh, to censor you, Dad, but you know, we do make some editorial decisions from time to time. <laughs> well, you may remember you and, and Laurel and Jan and I were sitting around the dinner table. I think you were roughly 10, nine or 10. Okay. I think Laurel yeah. was probably around five or six, around, around that time or so, maybe seven. And Jan and I had done the Est training created by Werner Mm, Erhard. mm -hmm. We did it back in the mid-1970s. And one of the aspects of that training, which was, for me at least, enormously valuable, Mm. while definitely you want to take it with a grain of salt. (laughs) Still, in that, one of the things they did is they basically had this part where the trainer, who the very charismatic, powerful speaker, basically said, vulgar term alert here, we are all assholes. Everybody in this room is an asshole. I, the trainer, am an asshole. You, and you start pointing at people, or she would, you are you, you are you, and you are an asshole. Just turn to the person next to you and say, I'm an asshole. Or look at them and go, you are an asshole. Versions of that. All right, so that's kind of the context. So I was explaining this to you and uh, Laurel a little bit, and then what your mom and I just did is... 
play. And we didn't tend to swear much in our household, so we didn't normally use this kind of language. And I found myself saying, you know, well, you know, I, I'm an asshole. Jan, you're an asshole. And she looked at me and said, Rick, you're an asshole. At this point, you and Laurel were stupefied. And then I turned to you and said, Forrest, you're an asshole. And then, Laurel, you're an asshole. And you both started laughing. And I was laughing. about to say, we probably started laughing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a kind of freedom in it. I'm totally. crystal clear. This is not about countenancing and enabling abuse. It's not about turning a blind eye to people who are really assholes. Okay? Yeah, sure. You know, at all scales, whether, you know, in your neighborhood or running your country. We want to be careful about that. But just to tolerate and accept, like, yeah, you know, there's a part of me that's kind of assholeish, or there's a part of me that's stupid. There's a part of me that's addictive. There's mm. a part of me that loses my temper. There's a part of me that thinks yeah. I'm superior. There's yeah. a part of me that thinks I'm inferior. Yeah. Both of them. They're in the mix and kind of lightening up about all that. Yeah, I totally love that and to not let the the presence of the part yeah. distort your perception of the whole yeah is i think what you're really pointing to here at the end of the day so to bring together a lot of the stuff that we've talked about during this episode i really enjoyed doing this one and i think that it might be helpful for people to have a little roadmap here for dealing with a negative thought or a ruminatory experience while they're having it so this is one that I threw together. Let me know if there's anything you would like to add to it, Dad. So let's say that you have some rumination that appears in the mind. Step one is to do what you said a little while ago, which is to label the presence of the thing. Identify the source of it, name it so you don't shame it. Go, oh, this thing is appearing in my brain again. If this thing is linked to an experience, linked to a fear, something like that, you can accept that that negative thing did in fact happen or that that difficult thought is in fact present. Be honest about the situation. You don't try to deny it or suppress it. Wow, it's frustrating that you're having this experience. Then from there, third, you can seek some psychological flexibility. Can you be creative? Can you be curious? Can you be open? What are some possibilities that exist for how you could make some form of change or address a concern or create a situation where you would no longer need to obsess over this thought that you're having? Then alongside that, we can create a different attractor, as you were talking about earlier, Dad. We can take in the good. We can be grateful for the positive parts of our life that are still true. We can see the parts of our past that are untouched by the negative thought. And we can give ourselves a break, maybe uh, connected to what you were saying at the end there, Dad, about seeing the part. And yes, the part is present, but that part doesn't contaminate the whole. And then we move into practices that allow regulation of the thought stream without suppression of the negative thought. This is everything we were just talking about, from mindfulness practice to distracting yourself to doing something that draws your attention out of selfing in a positive way to disconfirming the pathogenic belief and moving toward those antidote memories. Whatever it is that works for you, regulation without suppression, which ties into what I was talking about earlier in terms of the brain functions that rumination is based upon and how we can turn down the volume knob a little bit on those. So how does that sound to you, Dad? Sounds like an incredibly thorough Fantastic summary. And I'm just wondering about adding kind of maybe one more little thing. Yeah, it's not that. super well formed in me, but there's something about the direct experience of ruminating. Mm. So, first, when you're actually in it, it's not a pleasant experience. You're suffering. And so one thing to really emphasize here and talk about is compassion for yourself. Yeah. It hurts to ruminate itself. What you're ruminating about is typically a concern of some significant kind. All the above, you can bring compassion to yourself. You might also find that it's freeing to bring compassion to some of the other players that you're ruminating about, maybe beings you're worried about and also beings who are your adversaries who even mistreated you. Remembering mm -hmm. that compassion is not approval, does not let them off the hook, it's not forgiveness. And still, you can have a feeling through common humanity for the ways that they're suffering as well. Yeah. So flagging, compassion. And then maybe one last thing. 
which goes more to what I was saying in the very start about opening up into the murky depths, is there something about rumination in which we're sort of right at that liminal boundary zone, the twilight mm, zone mm-hmm. between the light of consciousness and the shadows of the unconscious. We're right at that edge sometimes when we're involved in ruminating. And one function of rumination, if it's repetitive and kind of brittle, is that it's warding off that which could be more creative or fertile or is pushing to come forward that is actually kept at bay functionally, perhaps, by the ruminative loops that we're engaged in. And so if you're involved in ruminating, one thing you can actually do is to go, oh, okay, I've been ruminating. What's underneath all this? Mm. Is there a deeper hurt here under these pain points I'm looping through? Is there a deeper meaning to what happened that's pushing forward? Is there something more universal? Because rumination tends to be very much about the particularities of me, 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 me. Can there be an opening into broader themes? I mean, some inherent tragedy of life in terms of it's one of its major features. The center doesn't always hold. Most people do disappoint one way or another, right? Even if you love them dearly. You know, accepting these things, opening to them. So something about this, including the subjective experience of engaging rumination as an opportunity, a kind of a portal to open into the murky depths, including their predominantly nonverbal, imagistic, and somatic features. Well, you really brought it home there at the end, Dad. And we could spend a lot of time <laughs> and have certainly spent a lot of time on the podcast already talking about what lies underneath the experience we're having and yeah. those what exists inside of the basement of the mind, which is a phrase that you've sometimes used in the yeah. past. And I think that it's a great point to raise here at the end as we close our episode here today. But I think that that's about all we have time for at the moment. Today, we explored a lot of information having to do with rumination and obsessive thoughts and how we can start to disengage from those negative thought streams. We began today's episode by talking about what rumination is and making some useful distinctions between negative forms of rumination and other forms of dwelling on different kinds of thoughts. If you have persistent negative thoughts that you just can't shake, those thoughts are interfering with your ability to enjoy some aspect of life, and you aren't exploring any new aspects of things, you're just chewing on the same old aspects of things, if the thought hasn't changed very much in the days or weeks or months or even years that you've been chewing on it, well, you're probably ruminating at that point. Generally, when we talk about rumination, we're focused on negative forms of rumination, where we're chewing on experiences that were uncomfortable, painful, thoughts that we don't like, things that we really don't want to be thinking about anymore. One of the key points about rumination is that unlike other forms of emotion processing, it doesn't really generate any new ways of thinking about something, or any new behaviors, or any new possibilities for somebody. When we ruminate, we're just processing the same old stuff without any change or growth. So if that's the case, why do we ruminate? And the answer is that rumination is a coping response. It's a behavior that we do in response to stress. And it's often a form of self-soothing for people where they feel like they're doing something about a fear or anxiety or concern because they're thinking about it a lot. And it's often a form of self-soothing for people where they feel like they're doing something about a fear or an anxiety that they have just because they're thinking about it a lot. But the truth is that they are just running circles around the track in their mind. They are a hamster on the wheel. We then talked for a little while about where rumination comes from, and your individual propensity toward rumination is going to be some combination of nature and nurture. One of the things that we do know is that people who have experienced a lot of stressful life events tend to ruminate more. And perhaps connected to that, people who have significant issues with depression, anxiety, OCD, PTSD, and so on tend to be more ruminatory. And there is this interesting link between how much somebody ruminates and whether or not the stressful experiences that they've had end up having long-term consequences for them. So this really just foregrounds the importance 
of working with rumination when it starts to appear in the mind. And being able to move away from those ruminatory thought cycles clearly has a lot of very real long-term benefits for people. I then talked for a little while about how rumination works in the brain. And to summarize that summary here, it's based largely on the default mode network. And this is a network in the brain that's responsible for wakeful rest, which is active when we're awake, but we're not really thinking about anything in particular. We're daydreaming or imagining or the world is just washing over us. It's the the autopilot network of the brain. So one of the things that we can do is we can look for practices that allow us to exert a little bit more top-down control over the default mode network, to regulate our attention and gently incline it back toward what we want to be thinking about as opposed to what we clearly don't want to be thinking about. A great way to do that is, hey, mindfulness practice. There's a lot of research that shows that deliberate forms of mindfulness can deactivate the default mode network. Another way to control the focus of our attention is to use various forms of distraction to do something else, some other attractor, as Rick was talking about, that pulls our attention away from the subject of our rumination and towards something else. And something that really supports distraction is novelty. And one really interesting piece of research that I didn't have an opportunity to talk about during the episode looked at different kinds of what are known as thought control strategies that are exercised by people who experience OCD. And it turns out that people who use strategies that are based on distraction tend to be a lot more successful than those who use strategies based on punishment, where they really beat themselves up about whatever negative thought they're having or whatever rumination is going on inside of themselves. And OCD patients in particular tend to be highly self-punishing. So this suggests that one path forward when dealing with excessive rumination is to not beat yourself up about it so much. Be present with the thought, acknowledge that it's there, accept that it's going on inside of you. And then start asking yourself some flexibility questions. What's new and different in your world these days? How have things changed since back then? Linked to that, a really important point here is that thought suppression strategies, when we have a thought that appears inside of the mind that we just try to push down into the murky depths, to use Rick's language, that almost never works for people. Generally speaking, the more you try to not think about something, the more you end up thinking about it. And this is quite similar to a common challenge many people have when they're starting meditative practice, where they try to deliberately not think about anything. And this is almost always a recipe for thinking about something pretty rapidly. Another important point about rumination is that it tends to be very static and view the world through very good-bad paradigms that are very fixed and unchanging. Particularly, this is the case when the thing that we're ruminating about is how we are a bad person on some level, where we're not just a bad person now, but we've always been a bad person, we will always be a bad person, our nature is itself a bad nature. But all of us have experienced this not being true at some point, and so one of the things that we can incline the mind toward are various forms of antidote memory. Can you deliberately activate times in the past when this thought stream was not true? Times when things really did work out for you, or when you really were a good person, or when other people really did support you? Almost all of us have examples in our lives of times when that really was true. Rick closed with a couple of wonderful reflections. The first was about the linkage between rumination and the nature of the self, how rumination can be a process that has a lot of selfing in it. And for people who have a little bit more of a fragmented sense of self, rumination can give a sense of something real and something coherent that really is there. So it's another plausible explanation for why people ruminate. And then he had this really lovely thought about accepting our own, well, the the difficult parts of us that live inside of every person. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. We've all got our warts. And becoming a mentally healthy person, a psychologically developed person in the world, is by and large not about cleaning up every wart we have. It's about cleaning up some of the bigger ones, some of the more problematic ones, and then coming to terms with the reality that we are whole people, warts and all. 
it's this push-pull that underlies so much of the work that we do that I think is maybe best summarized by a line from Suzuki Roshi, each of you is perfect just the way you are, and you could use a little improvement. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through whatever you're listening to it on right now. Maybe even leave a rating and a positive review, which really helps us out. And hey, you could always tell a friend about it. It's one of the best ways we have to reach new people. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a bunch of bonuses in return. Things like transcripts of the episodes, ad-free versions of the episodes, and expanded show notes where I do a deep dive into the research that goes into everything we create. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.